Would you bow your heads with me before we open the word of God? Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy in our lives. Because of your mercy that we are here sitting in church today. So we thank you, Lord, because you never leave us or forsake us. And as we open your holy word this morning, as we read from your word, as we listen to your word, we ask that you would send the divine teacher, the Holy Spirit, that the words and thoughts not come from this human being, but may they come directly from you, and may they find their way into our hearts to strengthen us spiritually for the battle that we face. Thank you for being in our midst today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles or your devices and you want to follow the reading of the scripture, Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. And this is what it says. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man? And they answered, Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, as was his custom, answered first and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Caesarea Philippi was a little town that was located at the base of Mount Lebanon. Mount Lebanon, the mountain range that separated what is now Israel from Lebanon. It was a little town that was named after Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, the Roman ruler, who was very um, renowned during that time. This little town was called Caesarea, in honor of Caesar of Philippi. Now, Caesarea was one of those out-of-the-way places. It was one of those off-the-beaten-path destinations. It was one of those uncommon locations. It wasn't a place that people sought out as a tourist spot. It was kind of out of the way. It was kind of like key, Pastor Sean. I don't know how many times people have asked me, where do you live? I say, Keene, Texas. And I said, what? Where is that? Caesarea Philippi was kind of one of those little towns that wasn't known for anything. And that's why Jesus decided to take his disciples and go to Caesarea Philippi so that they could get some rest and relaxation and even perhaps safety because of all the enemies that he had accumulated that were seeking to take his life. And so he goes to Caesarea Philippi, not as a preacher, not as a teacher, not as a scribe or a leader. He goes to Caesarea Philippi just to get away, just to have some time to himself. 
But when Jesus stops as they come into Caesarea Philippi and he asks the disciples these questions, there was a reason why he was asking the question. Let me give you some context to this question, who do men say that I am? The reason he's asking this question, we can find the story in John chapter 6, beginning with verse 60. If you would go with me to John chapter 6, beginning with verse 60. This is the reason why Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? This is what it says, John 6, verse 60. Therefore, notice the word, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend from where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Now he's talking to his disciples, not just talking to people off the street. Some of you do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him to come by my father. From that time, many of his disciples turned back and walked with him no more. I can imagine Jesus with tears in his eyes and pathos in his voice asking this question. Will you go away also? And this is a question that Christ did not only ask his disciples then, but he's asking you and I today. As the world turns more and more away from Christ, Jesus asked you and me this morning, will you go away as well? And before you answer like Peter did and say, oh Lord, I will never forsake you, remember Peter, who was good while everything was pleasant. But then when adversity set in, he denied his master three times. That's why it didn't mean a whole lot for Peter to flash out with this answer. Lord, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Because that's the same man that would betray his master just a few days later. But Christ did take joy in this reassuring answer of Peter. Who do men say that I am? All kinds of answers, but who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus took joy in that answer. Even though he didn't fully understand what he was saying, somewhere deep down inside of Peter there was faith. And so I encourage you today, you might be suffering from cancer and you can't see your way forward and you can't express much faith just deep down inside. Hold on to Jesus. Amen. You may be going through a divorce 
and it's messy, and it's combative, and it's toxic. You don't have a lot of faith to express on the outside. You can't even bring yourself to say that you trust the Lord. But deep down inside, hold on to Jesus. You might have just lost your employment. And you really have no way to sing a song of praise to the Lord because there's not a whole lot of good that's happening. But just somewhere deep down inside, hold on to Jesus. And say, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. But you see, in the aftermath of this situation in John 6, when Christ asked the disciples, will you go away as well? They had not responded all that well. They had not really shown or given evidence that they truly trusted the Lord. And while the masses were saying that Jesus was not the Messiah, he was a prophet, the disciples were saying, you're the Messiah, but they were acting like he was a prophet. And you and I may be good Seventh-day Adventists in what people call good standing and might hold positions in the church and we might look like we're good Christians, but when no one is watching... We're not saying that Jesus is the Messiah. We're saying he's just another man. Because, gentlemen, when I sit down in the front of the computer and I, my eyes start to wander to watch things on the computer that I should not be watching, I am not saying that Christ is the Messiah. I'm saying he's just another man. And he has no governance over me. And ladies, when I perhaps... And being vain in the way that I consider myself and adorn myself, even though I say verbally Christ is the Messiah, in my actions I'm saying he's just another man. So we have to ask ourselves this morning, if Christ were to come down the aisle today and turn to you and say, who do you say that I am? What could you truthfully answer? And so we see Jesus having to rebuke the disciples several times. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 8, he had to say to them, O ye of little faith, the disciples, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the Roman rulers, not the soldiers, not the common people of Israel, but the disciples who spent every day with him, 24-7, 365. He had to turn to them and and say, oh, ye of little faith. After you've seen a man rise from the dead. After you've seen a paralytic stand up and walk. After you've seen demon-possessed people liberated. You're still floundering in your faith. And so that's the context with which Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You know, sometimes you and I have fairly common and mundane conversations with each other. And we may say something casually to each other that on the surface may not hold much significance, but the Holy Spirit can take that and use it to make a profound impression in our lives that last a lifetime. I'll give you an example of that. One time in the summer of 1872, Two very 
prominent evangelists were having a conversation. One of them by the name of Henry Varley, prominent evangelist out of England, and the other, D.L. Moody, prominent evangelist from this country. And they were having a conversation, and in passing, Varley made a remark to Moody saying this, Varley had said, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Amen. Varley had meant any man. Varley didn't say he had to be educated, that he had to be brilliant or anything else, but just amen. Later, Dwight L. Moody said in his autobiography, he said, by the power of the Holy Spirit in me, I will be that man. Harley said, the world hasn't seen what God can do with a man who is totally given to him. And that was a casual comment, a casual remark. But for the rest of his life, Dwight L. Moody preached the gospel and won souls for Christ, grabbing souls out of the the grasp of addiction and prostitution and sinful lifestyle to become disciples of Christ. Always be attentive for something that someone says to you in passing, in a conversation. Because the Holy Spirit might be using that to make someone powerful out of you. Well, Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They came up with several options, right? When you read the passage, they came up with several things. Some of them say that you're John the Baptist. Now, why did they answer that? Kind of mundane, kind of random. Who do men say that I am? Well, some of them say you're John the Baptist. Why did they say that? Because it was a popular belief among some of the Jews during that time, even King Herod, that John the Baptist had resurrected. And when they saw Jesus come onto the scene, they said, ah, this is John the Baptist that got resurrected. Some of them say that you're Elijah. Now, why would they say some of them say that you're Elijah? That's kind of random, too. Well, maybe not so much, because in the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So when they saw Jesus with all of these miracles, And these wonderful things, they said, well, maybe he's Elijah that Micah the prophet prophesied about in the last chapter of the Old Testament. Still others believe that he was Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Well, it's interesting in Deuteronomy 18.15 that it says, the Lord your God will raise up from among you a prophet like me, Moses says from your midst, from your brother, and you will hear him. So Jesus of Nazareth, of the common folk, maybe this is the prophet that Deuteronomy 
said would rise up from among us and do great things. So the answers weren't really random. They had some substance to them. But I'm amused by these answers, my dear folk. I'm, I'm going to make it personal for us. I'm amused by these answers. You know, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, anything but Christ. Before we get too comfortable criticizing the disciples for these wrong answers, let's think about ourselves for a little bit. Good Adventists today, what do we respond to the world when the world asks us, who is Christ? Some of us good Adventists say, well, Christ is the Sabbath. Christ is the Sabbath. You can't be saved without the Sabbath. Others of us say, well, Christ is the health message. You need to be a vegan. <laughs> if you eat fish, you're going to be lost. Who is Christ? The health message. Who is Christ? The mark of the beast. Beware, because the Catholic Church will impose the mark of the beast. That's the message. The world's saying, but yeah, but who is Christ? And so we become experts as a church in explaining why you should keep the Sabbath, why you should have the health message, why you should recognize the mark of the beast, why you should be able to diagram all the end-time events. And after we've done all that to explain to people exactly how to be a good Adventist, we have not told them who is Christ. The world is saying, who is Christ? Could it be because they could come in here and spend several Sabbaths here and still leave not knowing who Christ is? You better be careful. Ellen White says in The Desire of Ages, page 411, he was about to tell them about his suffering that awaited him. But first he went away alone and prayed, notice, he went alone and prayed that their hearts might be prepared to receive the Spirit. Upon returning to them, he did not immediately communicate that which he desired to impart. Before doing this, he gave them an opportunity to confess their faith in him. I'll tell you what's happening right now. February of 2023. As we see all around us the end time signs that Jesus is coming soon. Right now, Jesus is looking at his church to see if there's someone in the church that has faith in him. Not faith in the Sabbath. Not faith in the Ten Commandments. Not faith in a health message. Not faith in the end time events. Faith in him. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that the Sabbath is not important. If it weren't important, I wouldn't be here. It is important. I'm not saying the Ten Commandments isn't important. I'm not saying the health message is important. What I'm saying is none of that matters unless you have Christ. If he's your Lord and Savior, then all of those other things have significance. 
But you can do all of that and still be lost if you're not in love with him. So when someone asks you next time, what are you referring to your religion? Don't say I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Say I'm a child of God who happens to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Better be careful. Yeah, it just rubs me the wrong way when I hear someone say, Oh, I'm a fifth generation Adventist. And? Truthfully, and? I'm a third generation pastor. And? I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying, and? (laughs) Because it doesn't matter how many generations did right before you. What are you doing? Are you right with God? Are you righteous in his eyes? By the way, it's not how I look while I'm standing up here preaching to you on Sabbath morning. Anybody can fake it good from here. What am I when no one is watching? That's how God grades. Not on what you do when everybody's watching, what you do when no one is watching. And so he asked them, who do you say that I am? You see, the second question is more pressing than the first. He originally asked them, who do men say that I am? But that was not so significant because the men, listen to me carefully, When he said, who do men say that I am? Those men had time to correct. When he asked them, who do you say that I am? There was no time to correct. Now somebody's going to get that next Thursday. (laughs) Let me translate that for you. If you fill your mouth with the proclamation that you're a child of God and you live the opposite, your time is up. Let me be clear. If you brag about being God's son or daughter, but you live the opposite, your time is up. Because you're bragging about something you care not about. The world out there They don't pretend to be something they're not. They're in sin, yeah. They're in sin, but they're not pretending to be something they're not. So they have room to come to a knowledge of the truth. But if you have the knowledge of the truth, and you practice the truth for years and years and years, and you haven't gotten better, Your time is up. And I had a pastor say to me one time when I was talking about this, Carlos, you're doing the devil's work by saying stuff like that. I don't think so. Because the Bible is clear. When you get home, read Hebrews chapter 10, 26. I won't read it right now. Hebrews 10, 26, but I'll quote it for you. If we sin willfully, 
after we have a knowledge of the truth, therefore there remaineth no sacrifice for that sin. I'm not saying it. The Bible says. What that's saying is, if you are so calloused that you continue to lie after you've read from the scriptures that lying is a sin, that means you love lying. If you continue to commit adultery after all these years that you've known that you displease God doing that, that means you love adultery more than you do God. And that's why your time is up. Because you've declared to God that you love something more than you love him. That was the problem with the disciples. That's why he asked them, who do you say that I am? He's trying to get them to understand it's not what you say. It's what you do. It's how you live. It's how you respond to the empowerment of the gospel. I can do all things through Christ. As much as I love lying, as much as I love adultery, I can leave that through the power of Christ that lives in me. Diagramming the last day events is not going to change your heart. Eating like a vegan is not going to change your heart. They're all good things, but they don't change you. The only thing that changes you is Christ, the power of life living in me. And when you love him above all things and you declare yourself to him, then you empower his power to work through you. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Notice what it says. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asked you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now get this, my friend. Always be ready to give a defense for those who asked you for what? A reason for your hope. What's the, when's the last time that your coworker went up to you and tapped you on the shoulder and said, tell me, why, are, why do you have such hope? Why do you have such strength in your life? Why is your marriage so strong? Why do you have such a good relationship with your children? Why is your work ethic so good. When's the last time someone tapped you on the shoulder and asked you why you are a superior person? When that happens, we won't ever have to have another evangelistic series. We won't have to mail brochures to empty mailboxes that nobody looks at. When all of us start to live what's in here, we won't have to have evangelistic meetings in here because evangelistic meetings will be taking place everywhere out there. Not necessarily you standing on a corner belting out scripture, but you living the scripture. Like St. Francis of Assis said, preach the gospel always and when it's necessary, use words. 
Preach the gospel always and when it's necessary. Use words. John Ortberg in his book Faith and Doubt, he says that the word trapeze, we don't hear that word very much anymore, do we? Because nobody goes to a circus anymore. We have enough circus in regular life to don't have to don't have to go to circus. But John Orberg, he says, you know, that word trapeze, it, it comes from a Greek word. Trapeze artist holds onto this bar as he flies through the air. The original Greek word for trapeze is table. And you think about the stability of things around you in everyday life. Table is one of those stable things. And he says that that original Greek word table refers back to the communion table where Christ sat with his disciples. And what Christ told his disciples at the table, relate this to trapeze because you and I are hanging on a trapeze wire right now. Christ told his disciples at the table, I am going to let go of my life so that you may have life in abundance. So Christ let go of his life on the cross. The cross became a table of stability for you and me. That as we sit at the table with him at a, on a daily basis, we are stabilized in the midst of midair. Think about that. So Christ comes to you and he comes to me today and he says, let go. Let go of the trapeze bar as you fly through midair of uncertainty, knowing that you will sit with me at the table. You will have peace. You will have stability. William Arthur Ward says it this way. I will do more than belong. I will participate. I will do more than care. I will help. I will do more than believe, I will practice. I will do more than be fair, I will be kind. I will do more than forgive, I will forget. I will do more than dream, I will work. I will do more than teach, I will inspire. I will do more than earn, I will enrich. And I will do more than give, I will serve. What is God asking you to do today, my dear friend? Matthew 16, verse 15. Let's read it one last time. Matthew 16, verse 15, one last time. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is this morning? What has Christ meant to you? Let me ask you a pressing personal question this morning as we wind up. Why did you get up and come to church today? Why? Well, I came because Pastor Harris asked me to preach the sermon. If I only came this morning because I had to preach the sermon, I'm wasting time. Well, I came this morning because after this week of ice and everything, I was tired of being cooped up in the house, so this is a good chance to get out. 
If you came because you just wanted to get out of the house, you're wasting time. Well, I came this morning because if, if I didn't come and if I didn't show up in church this morning, Sister Titus would have called me. If you come to church because if you don't, you'll be uncomfortable, you're wasting your time. But if you came because you wanted to be in the presence of Christ, then salvation is on the horizon. It's all about why you do what you do. It's not what you do, it's why you do what you do. You can do the wrong, the right things for the wrong reasons. You know, I've often thought through the years, why am I in ministry? Because you see, um, if there was ever someone who did not deserve to be in ministry, you're looking at it. If you knew some of the things I've done, you wouldn't want me standing here. But then again, if I knew some of the things you did, I wouldn't want you sitting there. <laughs> I have learned over the years that no one is better than anyone else, and no one is worse than anyone else. We're all sinners saved by grace. And it just it just doesn't seem right when we say, well, brother so-and-so is a member in good standing. How in the world do we know if he's in good standing? We're not watching him 24-7. Why do we think we have the authority to declare somebody's in good standing? Only God knows. So young people... When someone pats you on the back and says you're a good Christian, don't put too much stock in that. It's just one sinner congratulating another sinner. <laughs> but by the same token, if someone criticizes you, don't put too much stock in that. Because it's one sinner criticizing another sinner. Only live to hear that well done, good and faithful servant that comes from God. That's all I want to hear. I have learned that the important thing is this relationship, not this one. With all due respect to you good folk, you're good, good folk. I can see it in your faces. With all due respect to you all, you know, I want us to get along well, but if we don't exchange Christmas cards, that's all right. I'll make it. Because it's not about this. It's about this. If I'm right with God, I have a chance to be right with you. If I'm not right with God, no matter how much we fake it to each other, we're not right with each other. And so God says to you and me today, who do you say that I am? I want to leave you with this. How many of you remember being in grade school, for some of us it's been a while, but I think 
we can remember when we were back in grade school. And one of the aggravating things about grade school was there was always that nerd in the class. Remember that? That one really brilliant guy, that really smart girl that messed it up for all of us. (laughs) Because they would get all A's. I would get all C's. They would get all A's, and it seemed like they studied all the time, and they knew every answer. Their homework was always overdone. They were brilliant. But they messed it up for us because the teacher graded on a curve. Now, if I would have set the curve, everybody would have been good. (laughs) But there was always that nerd that would ace the test and get that great grade, and then all of us were sunk. Because the teacher said, you can do it. Because they did it. So actually, that nerd was aggravating to us because they were revealing our failure with their success. So we hated them. Because they did so well and we did so poor. And the bar was set too high. That's why some people dislike Jesus. Because when he came to this world, he set the bar high. Up until then, we could compare each other, compare ourselves to each other, and we'd be fine. It's like sometimes when my wife Letty and I are having moments of intense fellowship. (laughs) Not arguments. (laughs) Moments of intense fellowship. And she's better than I am at getting, you know, documented responses. And so I try to end the argument by saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And she ends the argument immediately by saying, well, I didn't marry so-and-so, I married you. And Jesus is your only example. End of the argument. Christ set the bar high. But instead of getting frustrated, this is what you should do. I can't measure up. I cannot measure up to the bar that he set. But I know the one who set the bar. And he can tutor me. If Christ tutors you, you will pass the test. If Christ tutors you, You will be an A student because you know the one who did it. You can do it as well. Whom do you say that I am? You are my Lord. You are my Savior. You are my sustainer. You are my elder brother. You love me beyond all things. You can't sit here this morning, young person, older person. You can't sit here this morning and say, you know what? My life is so messed up that I don't have anywhere to go from here. You can't say that because you do have somewhere to go, and that's Christ. Your brother and sister may not 
be what you need them to be. Your parents may not be what you need them to be. Your friends will eventually betray you. It's always happened. It always will happen. But there is one who never fails. Jesus Christ. As we sing our closing song, I know there's somebody here that needs to be prayed over. I don't know who it is, but I know that there's someone here that needs to be prayed over. As we sing our closing song, and you feel like you need to come to Christ, you're not coming to the front, you're not coming to the altar, you're not coming, responding. You're, you're coming to Christ. And you feel like you need to be prayed over because you're coming to him. Come as we sing. I'd love to have the privilege to pray over you before we leave. So as we sing, please come to the front. And thy own way, Lord. Have thy own way. I am the bottom. I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, healed and Have thy own way, Lord, have thy own Search me and try me, Savior, today. Wash me just now, Lord. Wash me just now. As in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thy own way, Lord, have thy own way, wounded and weary, help me, I pray, power, oh power, Because independent of how we come, what we look like, you always receive us. 
You always accept us. There's always room at the cross. I want to place those who have come forward into your hands this morning. You are a merciful God. You are an attentive God. You are a patient God. Thank you, Lord, for your forbearance with each one of us. Lord, we recognize that you have called to us and you have said to us, who do you say that I am? Help us to respond, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who takes our sinful lives and transforms them into righteousness. Bless each one that has come forward. You know the reason why they've come forward. Respond to their heart. Respond to the cry of their most profound place. Bless them with a heavenly blessing today. As we leave this sanctuary, but we never leave your presence, help us to live lives that rightly represent you wherever we are and whatever we do. Knowing that the time is short, help us to give you honor and glory in everything that we do. Bless each one today as we leave, and until we see each other again, may your Holy Spirit watch between us. We pray that in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.